Hey everyone, grace and peace to you all. Today is Thursday, August 6th, and we're coming back from our summer break with a little different format that will take on different iterations as we learn how to get better at these things. Our hope is that the Tuesday podcast is more relaxed, more devotional leaning, that will give you something to pray through or meditate on, and our Thursday podcast to take on more of a conversational feel, where we hope to make you think and spark some conversation in your community. So Thursday will have more of a story arc to them, each one connecting to the other. Again, this is new, so we'll take on some different iterations as we grow into this new format. So today, I want to start a Thursday series on the Christian virtues, what they are, why they are vital to live well in our contested world, and how to begin to develop them. Let's jump in. Six years ago, I read a book a friend gave me, and it started with this question. What do you want out of life? As I read that question, my mind flashed with several things I wanted out of life then. Six years ago, I wanted to own a house in San Francisco. Six years ago, I deeply desired to have a child with Ashley, my wife. Six years ago, my mind went to all kinds of other places when I read this book for the first time. Of all the things I wanted out of life, like certain kinds of furniture and places to travel, etc. But as I was daydreaming about all the things I wanted out of life, I fell right into this author's trap, because this is what he said next. He said, perhaps you want someone that loves you, maybe you want a home or a good job. Then he said, though all of that is good, however, those are things you want in life. My question was, What do you want out of life? In other words, he says, why are you living? What is the goal you have for your life? What is your grand goal of life? What is the grand goal for why you are alive and living? I remember being arrested by this logic and it stopped me dead in my tracks. Because many of us will have trouble naming this goal. And it's because we've never paused to consider our grand goal in living. And it's understandable why we haven't. Our culture doesn't encourage people to think about such things. It actually provides us with an endless stream of distractions so we won't ever have to deal with this question. We make our goal the next gadget or the next apartment or the next relationship or career advancement. And we do that enough and for so often that there is a strong possibility of turning 65 years old without ever considering our grand goal for living without any coherent philosophy of life. Now, why is it important to have such a philosophy? This author, William Irvine, put it like this. Quote, why is it important to have a philosophy of life? Because without one, there is a danger you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. And when it's put this way, how scary is that? So the question boils down to this. How do we not mislive? 
Or what should our philosophy of life be so that we will not waste this one chance we have of living? Now, there are many people, thinkers, and philosophers alike that believe the best way to live, what they would call the good life, is by living virtuously. A life of virtue is a life that has not mislived. Now, we'll spend some time in the upcoming podcast discussing if this is true and what the way of Jesus has to say all about that. But before we talk about the call of virtue, I believe we have to start with talking about who we are. Because if we don't understand who we are, virtue can become moralism, do-goodism, and even plain old religiosity. So what do I mean by who we are? I want to read to you Colossians 2.20. This scripture has been very important to me because um, at a crucial point in ministry here in San Francisco, I, I didn't really, really know how to move forward with teaching our church Christian sanctification. I remember we're about a year and a half into the church and the church was growing really rapidly and it was full of a bunch of San Franciscans that you know, moved to San Francisco to get away from religion and organized uh, religiosity, but they were now falling in love with Jesus, and how in the world was I going to teach sanctification to these people that moved away from all of that stuff? And I wanted, you know, my instincts were from this, like, youth ministry perspective. I wanted everyone to start signing purity pledges and wear promise rings and wanted to make a list of things they should and shouldn't do. Then I read this, Colossians 2.20, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Quote, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That was verses 20 to 23. Now, Paul here is writing to the church in Colossae, who is dealing with some false teaching surrounding the church. A false philosophy was going around the church. And the philosophy was an approach to religious and spiritual life an approach that basically said in order to come into fullness or maturity or to experience all that life with God has to offer, you had to add all these rules of restriction and regulation to your Christianity. Stop doing this and stop doing that. That was the message that was flying around this young church. Now, listen to this. This is important. Right before moving into chapter 3, which is on Christian sanctification, which is the process of being made like Christ in holiness and dedication to God, Paul says that adding all of these external rules to Christianity, quote, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, actually do nothing to restrain sensual indulgences, which means do nothing to actually turn you into someone who lives a, um, a Christ-like, self-controlled, pure, godly life. Why? Well, it says in verse 23, such regulations have an appearance of wisdom. They look really wise with their self-imposed worship, but they don't have any value. It doesn't work because it doesn't get to the heart. But now Paul goes on, chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. 
set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What is Paul getting at? Paul is getting at a better way of just lists of like, don't do this and don't do that. And I believe this better way is the movement of the entire New Testament. I believe this better way that Paul is getting at is the thrust of Jesus' teachings. It's the point of the Sermon on the Mount, the point of the letters to the churches and how Paul brings people into sanctification. And it is this simple sentence, this simple statement, and it goes like this. Be who you are. This is what I believe Paul is getting at in every single thing he writes. This is what he tells every Christian in every letter. Paul writes in Colossians 3 that the follower of Jesus is one who has placed their faith in Christ. The Christian is given a brand new identity. Trusting in Christ by faith, following Jesus means you have a new identity, not an identity based on moving parts or emotions or conflicting desires or job opportunities or even merit and godliness, but you have a new identity. And what is this new identity? Paul says your new identity is Christ is your life. Our new identity, the thing that that Christ proclaims over you and over I, is that Christ is your life. He is your life. It's a fact. This is called an indicative in Scripture. An indicative is something that has already been indicated or declared about you. It's a fact. It's a truth about you. We often get indicatives confused with imperatives. Imperatives is something that we are to do. They're commands. Now, when we read the Bible and we sit in church, we often hear the imperatives. We hear the commands. That's what we're like. our ears are tuned for. Now, to those who are a bit maybe more liberal-leaning, non-religious, non-establishment types, you hate commands. You think it's a threat to your freedom every time you hear when a pastor tells you what not to do. Now, to those of you who are religious and love rules and guidelines, you love commands. You love when people tell you what to do because that's the way you can chart progress. You're like, oh, I don't, I do that. Whatever the pastor just said, I do that. I must be awesome. Now, both of these approaches are wrong. Why? Because every single imperative or command in Scripture is based on an indicative, a truth. I'll say that again. Every single imperative in Scripture is based on an indicative. And unless you understand and drive the truth deep into your heart, you'll never understand the command. That's why whenever there's a command in Scripture, there will always be somewhere very close to a command an important truth about who you are in Christ. So when the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 6 how to flee sexual immorality, it says because you are not your own, Christ lives inside of you, you're bought with a price. That's who you are. Christ lives in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. That's who you are. So therefore, because of who you are, don't do this. It's based on the truth. When the Bible talks about unity or humility in Philippians 3, and it says don't have selfish ambition or vain conceit, it's because Christ lives in you and you have the mind of Christ. That's who you are. Actually, if you zoom out and talk, think of the Ten Commandments, like the ultimate list of indicatives of things we're supposed to do, that's still based on a truth. How does the Ten Commandments start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What is that? Identity, truth, 
You're no longer slaves. Therefore, live like this. Okay, back to virtue. Why is knowing who we are, our identity, vital if we're going to move on to define virtue? Because virtue without identity is moralism, meaning it's rules and regulations. That's all it is. It's empty and won't last, and you will be crushed under the command. If your life is all about just trying to be good, a good Christian, you'll be crushed under it, or you think God owes you something. But identity without virtue is a form of adolescence, meaning there is maturity that should take place for the follower of Jesus. If you know who you are in Christ, but are as neurotic as anyone without Christ, and you can't stay put, you can't stay in a relationship, you can't stay in community or in a single church, you may think you know your identity is in Christ, but that truth has not sunk down deep to the core of who you are and caused deep maturity in you yet, which is the hope of this series. We need to know who we are in Christ and allow that truth to inform everything else about us. And that's it. This is where we must start when we talk about the virtues our identity in Christ. Next week on our Thursday series, we'll look at the question of are virtues distinctly Christian or do the Greek philosophical roots disqualify them from something we should be pursuing as followers of Jesus? Until then, peace be with you.